In Her Manner of Speaking, a monthly podcast on the spoken word. Episode number 47, December 2021. Teaching dialects and grammar. All dialects are equal, but are some more equal than others? A conversation with Willem Holman. Hello again, Paul Meyer here. Welcome back. First news about my Zoom masterclasses. Bowing to public demand, as they say, I've now scheduled five different classes for 2022 in February and March. Each will consist of four weekly Zoom sessions, 90 minutes each. A complimentary copy of my Accents and Dialects for Stage and Screen, the Deluxe Streaming Edition, is included. For all the details, look for Masterclasses under the Coaching tab on the menu bar at paulmai.com. I hope to have the pleasure of your company. With the holidays upon us, are you looking for a special gift for the actor in your life? Well, until January 1st, I've discounted accents and dialects for stage and screen. A nice stocking stuffer, you'll agree. That's available only on paulmeyer.com. If you're listening in Canada, Australia or the United Kingdom, the fastest and cheapest way for you is through your own Amazon website. I've provided the same discount for the iTunes Apple Book version, so an Apple gift card might be a nice idea if the actor in your life uses Apple devices. And I want to give you a gift, too, to thank you for listening. My audiobook reading of Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol. You heard me read a minute or two on my recent podcast with Elizabeth Wiley. But now, until January 1st, you can hear my complete reading of the full 1843 Dickens novella. No charge. Just go to paulmeyer.com slash christmascarol. All one word, Christmas Carol. Press play and enjoy this classic with my season's greetings. Now for our quiz, Guess That Accent. Last time I played this clip and challenged you to say where on the planet the speaker grew up. I'm a Christian and I do go to church. But uh, my prayer is that uh, one day, one time, God uh, will do me good much better than he has been doing. And I know, I believe, I will be somebody also who can assist in the community, who can be approached whenever there is a problem to assist, be it financially or ideally. And uh, that is me. Yeah. If you said Africa, well, you're on the right continent. But if you narrowed it down to Kenya, very well done indeed. It was Ideas Kenya 7, recorded by our newest associate editor, Betty Moulton. Lately retired from a stellar career as voice and speech professor at the University of Alberta, Canada. Welcome, Betty. And thanks for the five great Kenyan samples of yours we've just published on Idea. To listen to Kenya 7... Go to the Kenya page on IDEA, which you will find indexed on the Africa page, under the Dialects and Accents tab. Now, here's this month's challenge. Where did this speaker spend his formative years? Because I'd, I'd never found anything quite like Shakespeare. I've done a few musicals and intermediate schools and stuff, as you do. But Shakespeare was like, um, I was like what is this? Why, why are the words so strange? What makes the, the words this way? Um... And, and then, of course, the next year we did uh, Romeo and Juliet, in which I managed to Romeo, which was quite awesome. Get the answer next time. 
While we're talking about idea, we've just finished our fall fund drive. Many, many thanks to all who gave. If you were meaning to donate, but just didn't get round to it, the support button is always available in the right margin of every page of the website. Any amount, large or small, at any time of the year, will be much appreciated by the over 100 volunteer editors who submit the recordings you find so useful. My guest today is Willem Holman, Professor of Linguistics at Lancaster University in England. He's been exciting some lively controversy of late with regard to his views on standard and non-standard grammar. Welcome, Willem. Please say hi to Paul Baker, your colleague there at Lancaster. He was my guest on podcast number 37 in February this year about Polari, secret language of gay men. Hi to you as well, and I'll definitely pass on your regards to, to yeah. Paul Baker. Yeah, please give him give him my best. Give him my best. So, Willem, you've created quite a stir in, in the Times, on the BBC and elsewhere with your views on the teaching of grammar, and uh, especially your views on uh, non-standard grammar. So we've got all the time in the world. Take us through those apparently controversial ideas of yours. Yeah. It would seem that I, I have created a bit of a stir, although whether it's my ideas or a slight sort of partial representation and to an extent misrepresentation of those ideas, uh, I think that's that's an open question. So what happened is I'm part of a national group of language experts who share a passion for educational linguistics, and we're called the Committee for Linguistics and Education. Yes. And basically, we try to build bridges between academic linguistics and schools, the aim basically being to support the teaching of languages, including English, but not only English. Yes. And on, on behalf of that committee, I wrote a brief paper on knowledge about language of primary teachers in England in the context of what they need to know in order to be able to teach the national curriculum. Right. Now, one of the comments in that paper is about correspondences between written letters and spoken sounds. And as you know, of course, these correspondences are not very transparent in English in many cases. Oh, I mean, my you, goodness. Your, <laughs> your, your podcast last month with yeah. Erica Okrent uh, was pretty much devoted to that, right? It was, yes. So in the national curriculum, these correspondences are described using the International Phonetic Alphabet, the IPA, but in terms of received pronunciation, RP. And that's really just one accent among many, um, mm -hmm. spoken by about 3% of the UK population. So take me through that. I'm, I've got a little bit lost. Where, where in the national curriculum is, is IPA used representing only RP? I'm not quite clear on that. Yeah, so there's so there's a section in there about correspondences between written letters and spoken sounds. Oh, and I see. In, so, yeah. so 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 students are introduced to the correspondences between sounds and letters, and, yes. the, and the examples quoted are uh, transcribed in 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 received pronunciation entirely. Exactly, exactly, but, exactly. I'm, I'm with you. Um, so because that's really only one accent among many and, and one spoken by a very small minority of the UK population, we as, as a committee feel that that's not particularly helpful for teachers who need to teach children who speak many other accents. And for the teachers themselves who, statistically speaking, probably speak a different accent too. Yes. I then wrote a piece for, for the conversation that focused more on the teaching of grammar. And that was picked up by a reporter working for the Daily Telegraph. He 
picked up both articles and did a short interview with me. Yes. And he was especially interested in the focus on the national international curriculum on received pronunciation. And the conversation kind of got extended to standard English, which isn't the same thing, but I'm happy to talk about that as well. In my view, and the view of certainly some other linguists who have looked closely at the national curriculum and the way in which children are tested in England, in the, the statutory grammar, punctuation and, uh, and spelling tests, standard English isn't only privileged, but it's represented as correct. And the implication then is that non-standard forms are not. So I told the journalist that rather than presenting standard English as correct and other forms as wrong, we should be teaching our children that standard English is the socially most prestigious form, but that other dialects are not incorrect. To me, it's a little bit like wearing a shirt and a tie. So that's socially prestigious and it's appropriate in some formal situations, but it doesn't mean that wearing a jumper, as I'm doing right now, <laughs> or wearing a T-shirt is wrong. Now, the Times, which is the newspaper for which Claire Fogues or Fogers, not sure about the pronunciation. No, uh, I, wasn't, I wasn't sure how she pronounced her name either. No, I've seen both pronunciations sort of sort of being used. Um, but but let's say Claire Fogues, her paper, the Times, then ran an article the next day based on the article in the Daily Telegraph. Um, let, yeah, let, let me quote from that. Why not? Willem Holman, professor of linguistics at Lancaster University, argued last week that our curriculum and exams are biased because they're based on socially prestigious standard English, disadvantaging those who grew up saying I were rather than I was. To level the field, the professor would like the national curriculum to recognize grammar that deviates from standard English. On the heels of all must have prizes, the educational approach which deemed that children could never fail, we have the similarly wrong-headed, all uses of English are equal. Did she misunderstand or misrepresent you? Or I think possibly both. The article in the Daily Telegraph was based on an interview with me. The Times then ran another article. And then Claire Fox's piece was based on that article. The Times didn't speak to me. Claire Fox didn't speak to me. And so I'm not actually annoyed with it. I'm not blaming them. I'm aware that there aren't the resources in journalism that perhaps they used to be. And so, you know, they probably didn't have time to contact me. There's also, from my perspective, a bit of a trend in mainstream media towards the big stories. I can't really hold individual columnists such as, such as Claire Folks or indeed Simon Jenkins of The Guardian responsible for that. So I'm not saying that she did this sort of on purpose. So no, what she claimed my ideas are are, are not, in fact, uh, those ideas at all. Uh, so let's take the time to really explore what you propose. I, sure. I, I, I certainly buy the argument that that the representation of standard English in in IPA privileges are the RP minority mm -hmm. dialect. Uh, so uh, yeah, yeah, go for it. Let's let's hear what your views really are. So there are certain things that I would quite like to change in the national curriculum. Uh, I would like the national curriculum and curricula elsewhere as well uh, to reflect the view which really all academic linguists and sociolinguists hold in, in the UK, the US and other, and other countries that standard English is the socially most prestigious form, but that other dialects are not wrong. That, however, doesn't mean that we should stop teaching children how to use standard English. I've got two, two boys, two sons who are five and seven years old now, 
And, you know, in the UK, children wear school uniforms and they've got little clip-on ties. When they're bigger, I will teach them how to not a tie. Why? Well, not because that's correct and not wearing a tie is wrong, but because wearing a tie is appropriate in some situations and I want them to be able to participate in those situations. So likewise, standard English is, is an important variety because of its prestige, especially in formal contexts such as academic writing or cover letters and job applications. Mm -hmm. I would argue that there is space for raising children's awareness of non-standard dialects as well. And, and I'd say that this would have benefits in terms of inclusion, in terms of engagement in the education system. And while we're at it, our classrooms are actually not only multi-dialectal, but they're also multilingual. And again, making, making more of that resource, even in just the teaching of English, would to my mind be very positive, not least from the point of view of, of inclusivity. Well, you, you'll hear no argument from me about those ideas, absolutely, as you would have probably expected. <laughs> yes. <laughs> That's probably in a nutshell what my position is. And on the one hand, it's a bit of a shame that it got distorted by various kind of articles basing themselves on other articles rather than coming straight to me for, for a little chat. Yes. Um, on the other hand, I could tell that the various columns did direct quite a lot of readers to my pieces on the conversation because as an author, you know, you have access to a dashboard where you can see the views. And I could see after Claire Fox's piece that the views shot up. So in a sense, I'm really grateful for that. You know, it's it's <laughs> it's boosted, it's boosted reader numbers. And I suspect that when people came to see the article, they might have been quite surprised. I certainly was too. Yes. Right. Yes. <laughs> um, hopefully, some people may have had some of their ideas challenged and maybe yes. changed a little bit. Okay. So here's the big question that uh, everybody's up in arms about. Do you advocate the National Education Ministry's teachers, markers of exams, be more tolerant of regional dialect or otherwise non-standard grammar, spelling, and vocabulary in formal writing. If that's at all what you are advocating, make that case. In formal writing, no. So that's, <laughs> so that's my really brief answer. A slightly longer answer is I would like the education system not only to be more tolerant, but actively sort of encouraging curiosity and, and study of non-standard grammar, spelling, and vocabulary. Oh, I love children, that too. Yes, great. Yeah, children love to explore these differences between accents, between dialects, and between languages. Especially in Britain. Americans are not so yes. interested, I think. Oh, that's but interesting. Brits, of course, are fiercely accent conscious. They can mm. in, inflect a vowel, you know, at one millimeter to the left, and uh, they, <laughs> they can hear that. Yes, uh, yes, and, yes. And, and derive meaning and, and so forth from those tiny shifts in vowels. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah. Yeah, that's that, that, that's all true. Certainly in places then where children do enjoy this, I'd say that we know from the literature on learning that positive effects. So basically, whether you enjoy doing something or not, can help you do better. So if we are to teach children what, you know, what things like demonstratives are, as we do need to in the context of the national curriculum in England, and um, this is primary school age children, then why not expose them to a bit of non-standard English where instead of those, the speaker uses them, right? Please get me them books rather than please get me those books. And let the child work out correspondences like that between standard and non-standard variants. And that can, to my mind, be part of a, of a more engaging way to teach an otherwise quite dry and possibly intimidating term like demonstrative. Yes. 
So this is all encouraging of, of the ability to code shift and to know the appropriate way of writing and speaking, depending on the social context, right? Yes, there are children who grow up speaking standard English at home and using RP. They're a small minority of all children, but they do exist. I certainly wouldn't say that we need to make them bi-dialectal, but for them too, some exposure to and playing around with other dialects, I think would be very positive just in terms of awareness raising and in terms of, as I said, um, enjoyment, just sheer joy in playing around with language and discovering things. Wonderful. Yeah. No argument from me on that. Just to kind of re-emphasize, just in case it wasn't abundantly clear already, I wouldn't say that we shouldn't also teach children standard English um, for use, especially in informal writing. And there might be fears in some quarters that that's really only possible if we focus exclusively on this one variety. Giving space to non-standard varieties somehow detracts from the bandwidth that children have available uh, to take in standard English. That, to my mind, is based on ideas around monolingualism and monodialectalism that are ideological rather than based on empirical evidence. I think it's perfectly possible to teach children standard English for use, especially in formal writing, but alongside pay attention to non-standard dialects. There was a time when more of that was done, also in this country. Yes. From a personal point of view, and reviewing my exposure to standard English, I'm a, I'm a thoroughly working class lad myself. My grandfather was a Hampshire, a Hampshire carpenter, and uh, right, yeah. And then um, uh, later we moved to London, and and uh, so I learned the uh, the South London Cockney as as my mm -hmm. as one of my dialects, and I uh, I never at all felt marginalised or shamed during education. I, in fact, I remember the joy of discovering that I could actually write elegant prose that, that would give me membership of an international community of English speakers and writers, and, and, yep. and, and the joy of, of knowing that I could communicate globally, internationally, with this commonly accepted form of our, of our language was so exciting for me. So, so far from being shamed into it or shamed by the insistence on standard English writing, I, I embraced it. So hmm, I, think, yeah. I, think, I think kids get the hang of formal, well-written standard English and speaking and being more down home when they want to be. It's code shifting. And exactly. And we can all do that. I mean, you're probably an extreme case of the ability to shift between different codes, but the majority of speakers do this as a matter of course, perhaps not you know, between as many varieties as uh, as as you do, uh, certainly professionally, but it's it's a profoundly sort of basic human ability to be yes. able to do this. So yeah, do you think many Lancashire kids have shame issues over being exposed to the curriculum as it's now required? I'm not sure about Lancashire in particular. The research evidence I've seen is kind of not specifically from this region, but a bit more general. It's certainly the case that there is evidence that children do feel intimidated by this and their parents too. That's really, to, to my mind, quite harmful and, and completely unnecessary. So if children feel like they can't speak up, and if the message children get in classrooms is that the variety of English that they've learned from their parents is wrong and shameful that, yeah exactly sure. what does it do to the relation between them and their parents and what are the parents to think themselves how are they to feel about this it's all very unhelpful <laughs> indeed 
I was trained as an actor in London mm. in, in the late 60s. Mm -hmm. And at that time, the insistence upon RP as the lingua franca was so severe. You couldn't even graduate from my drama school if you couldn't live your daily life in RP. So all of the yeah. people from all the other regions, you know, I, I didn't suffer from it. It, mm -hmm. it wasn't a huge hurdle for me, but my Scottish friends, my Jamaican friends, people from all over the, the UK and all over the world, you know, it was, it was a major hurdle, a much more major hurdle for them than it need needed to have been. I think, I think that's all largely gone. We still teach our P2 actors, of course, because my goodness, we need to be able to do Downton Abbey and, uh, and Pride and sure. Prejudice, of course. But um, making it the, the everyday lingua franca of the acting community is uh, a prescriptive and, and restrictive way of, of going at, at this very creative project that you've talked about. And same with, same with writing. That's right, yeah. And you have another point, don't you, Willem, about um, the teaching of grammar. I fell into the uh, dark ages when grammar had disappeared from the curriculum. Mm. And, you know, demonstratives and modal verbs and all of that was just completely gone from my education. I, th I think you refer to the idea that just expose kids to literature and they'll pick it up as they go along. But then it came back in. So take us through the history of the in and out of fashion quality yeah. of the teaching of grammar. Up until the nineteen the nineteen fifties, nineteen sixties, grammar was taught in in many schools in England, as a matter of course. And the way in which it was taught was largely based on Latin. Of course, there was always some variation between schools. There wasn't a national curriculum at the time that only came in in the late nineteen eighties. So there was sort of a a bit less standardization across schools than perhaps there is now. But by and large, quite a lot of grammar was taught at that time using categories that hadn't really been developed for English, but that had been developed for Latin. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, you would, you would study English and you would find out that he is the nominative and him is the accusative, right? Which, yes, is, yes. which are forms that are borrowed from Latin grammars. I can attest to this because I had a, a huge dose of Latin. So I knew, I knew all my grammar from my, mm. Latin, my Latin classes, but yeah. From the 1920s, that approach started to be criticized more and more. After the Second World War, that criticism kind of gathered more and more pace. You know, there were various studies that, that sort of showed that the subject, or, or that at least that claimed that the subject was, was kind of too difficult for children. And also, there was kind of more and more emphasis in the UK on English literature. And with that then came the idea that children would sort of pick up grammar as they went along, which is kind of the idea that you hinted at yes. um, a minute or two ago. And then in the 1970s, we sort of see a slight shift again, as we often do. These things often go sort of often go back and forth as, uh, as pendulums, but not necessarily in completely the same way. So what happened in the in the 1970s is that there were several reports that were that were critical of the way in which language was being taught, where the evidence pointed to were what uh, was sort of high levels of illiteracy, both in England and in and in Wales. And so the government felt that whatever was happening somehow wasn't working, and so they then shifted their policy quite 
drastically. And we saw the gradual return of grammar to the classroom kind of from 1988, which is mm. when the first national curriculum was, was introduced in England. And of course, the, um, teachers, the teachers just hadn't had that in their, uh, the younger teachers, I suppose, just hadn't been taught it themselves. Exactly. And still are. Therein really lies the problem. So there have been many studies, and you know these are studies sort of going back a quarter of a century, that show that teachers and trainee teachers essentially don't have the knowledge required to teach the national curriculum in terms of what it now demands from teachers and from children in relation to knowledge about grammar. And so, so that's really a problem. And there is, of course, a private sector, including publishers. Books are published about English grammar, um, specifically for teachers. When I look at them, <laughs> I'm often horrified. Some of them are quite good. Many of them aren't very good at all. And many of them contain the kinds of errors that I certainly would not expect and have never seen in books that are written to support mathematics teachers. Can you give us some examples so, of their wrongheadedness and errors? One example that I believe I also mentioned in the one of the pieces I wrote for the conversation is that have will be analyzed as a, as a modal verb. Have to, as in I have to go to the shop this evening, that is analyzed as a modal verb by some grammarians. But that's quite different from have, as in I have a monitor in front of me. Right. So that's just one example. There are many. Other examples might be things like they might be talking about a category such as adverbs, and they might then give a few example sentences and underline some adverbs which are correct, but they might miss out on four or five others that are also adverbs. And so that's also quite difficult because if not all instances of a category are identified, that of course also makes a teacher doubt as to whether they fully understood what something like an adverb may be. So there are many of, many of those kinds of errors in many of these books. So the short version of that is that the government hasn't really provided the kind of professional development for teachers that they need if they are to teach this aspect of the national curriculum effectively. And the private sector isn't providing the support either. There are some small pockets of excellence. There are some CPD courses, continuous professional development courses, organized by certain organizations, organizations of teachers, organizations set up by academics. But they're really small pockets of excellence. There is not sufficient structural support for teachers to teach this. Yes. Yeah. So you're far from decrying grammar as an important skill. You just say it's not being taught well, of course. Yeah. Was Simon Jenkins in The Guardian attacking you when he wrote, no one wants to see the demise of English dialects? Like the landscapes and townscapes of which they form a part, dialect is rooted in ancient customs and cultures. Of course, it should be honoured and studied in schools and colleges. Indeed, all children should be bilingual in English. The accents in which these various Englishes are spoken will always be alive and changing from RP to multicultural London English. It must be the most swiftly mutating language on the planet. Grammar is different, he says. English is full of irregularities. Thank you, Erica Okrant. English is full of irregularities handed down over the centuries, and its correctness is a reasonable topic for argument. Its spelling is diabolical, but as long as English is the nation's language, as well as much of the world's, its communality, its grammatical accuracy is in everyone's interest. 
accent we can leave to the diversity of the human marketplace, but the gods of grammar we should surely respect. Was he talking to you there, do you think? I've been puzzled by by this a little bit as well. Um, I think his his article certainly takes a, a slightly milder, I would say, slightly more enlightened position than than Claire Fox's on yes. on this and on kind of the acceptance and even appreciation of of variation in English. But the notion that grammar is different and is somehow separate. So here he is in one sentence talking about various Englishes. And he's talking about uh, one of the Englishes he mentions is, is multicultural London English. Mm-hmm. And then he seems to draw a line between that and between grammar, as if the grammar of multicultural London English is exactly the same as the grammar of standard English. And there are other there are other bits in there that sort of have me kind of struggling a bit. So yes, the, yes, go- I- the, the, the gods of grammar, we should surely respect. I mean, gods of grammar, it's nice alliteration. But what exactly does it mean, right? <laughs> Who are the gods of grammar? So uh, earlier in the article, he talks about singulars and plurals, tenses and conditionals, qualifiers and determinants. If those are the gods of grammar, all those things exist in non-standard varieties just as well. They might exist in slightly different ways. They might be subject to slightly different rules, but they're certainly there. And they don't represent muddled thinking as, who was it with the the little... Radio 4 chat. It was about all of four minutes long. And was it... Neville um, Gwynn. Yes. Yeah. Neville Gwynn yes. seemed, seemed to think uh, the, the regional dialects some somehow were guilty of muddled thinking. You couldn't think correctly if you didn't think in standard English. I mean, that was crazy. Crazy is the word, yes. If you take into account that standard English is spoken by around 12 to 15% of the UK population. And essentially what you're saying is that 85% yeah. can't think straight. And if that's the best the BBC can do to refute your argument, then, <laughs> then they need to work a little harder, I think. Yes. Well, I would like to believe that Nick Robinson, the, the presenter, was on my side in that particular bit of the, of the debate, but who knows? I mean, of course, another, another dimension to this is the historical one, where if we say that standard English is the only way in which one can think straight, then how about the many centuries when there was no such thing as standard English? <laughs> so in 12th, 13th century England, was there nobody capable of thinking straight? Really? Is that really what you would want to say? Um, so yeah, if the interview had been a bit longer, I, I would have liked to put that question to Neville Gwynn, but as it happened, it wasn't. I love the idea that, uh, and you've heard me in several podcasts allude to the fact that correct spelling as a concept came in you know, comparatively late in England, but I'm I'm unaware of when grammar was codified. If if there's an equivalent in in writing in in grammar of of the notion of of correctness, when when did correct grammar start to come in? Because we know we know that it was pretty fluid for for many centuries, right? It's perhaps slightly slightly harder to 
to pinpoint. And indeed, there are still areas where there is fluidity, of course. Prepositional stranding, for example, you know, whether or not you're allowed to end a sentence, roughly speaking, in a preposition or not. And if we look at what speakers actually do, it turns out that they sort of do both. They sometimes do and they sometimes don't. So we see the emergence of standard English from round about 1400. And, and we see sort of a gradual increase in agreement on what standard English grammar should be, but it's not easy to pinpoint it in any clear way. And changes continue to happen. They're often small changes in terms of kind of frequencies. Um, here's something. In British English, it's still okay to say, I shall. In American English, if we look at sort of descriptions of, of American English, this isn't really used. I don't know whether that's your experience as well as somebody yes. who's moved from, from the... Yeah. Um, now, does that mean that in American English, I shall is wrong? <laughs> You know, at what point does something go from being grammatical to being sort of a bit archaic to being wrong? Yes. It's very hard to say, isn't it? Yes, it is. So I think there is still there is still some fluidity and it's it's all a little bit less easy to pinpoint than with spellings. This has been great. I want to end our lovely conversation with uh, something that's really way off topic, but I know you're interested. <laughs> I know you're interested in linguistic forensics, uh, yes. <laughs> especially verbal deception detection. I love that. So I can't, <laughs> I can't resist this closing question. Actors attempt to deceive us into thinking that their recitation of memorized and scripted text is, in fact, unscripted and completely spontaneous. So I'm going to challenge you to say, given a recording of a skilled actor performing naturalistically on TV or in a film, could you always detect their verbal deception, the fact that they're sort of essentially putting one over on us? It's a really, a really interesting, intriguing question. I suppose I'd say that the field of verbal deception detection, which is mainly an area of psychology rather than linguistics, but there are linguists who are interested in it and, and, and contribute more and more to it. But that field will have almost nothing useful to say in relation to that particular question, because the way in which verbal deception detection generally works is by careful analysis of linguistic features, often grammatical features, that we sort of accidentally change when we lie compared ah, to when we tell the truth ah. um, due to the impact of the lies on our mental state and our cognitive state. So I'll give you an example. One of the things we might look for, it depends a bit on the approach we take to, to deception detection. There are different methods, different approaches, but let's take one. One approach to deception detection might look for first-person singular pronouns, so words like I and me. And the idea there is that most of us don't like to lie. There are some people who do, but most of us don't. And so when we do lie, we subconsciously try to dissociate ourselves from those lies. Uh, yes. And so for that reason, we tend to use I and me less often. Mm. Now, that's you're not going to find evidence of that in a film script. There are things one could do in relation to kind of working out whether an actor is 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 lying in this in you know if we define lying in this in this manner which is of yeah. course a, a, a slightly different way than we would normally define yes, it yes. but it's not really making use of the field and and the knowledge that we've gathered right. in verbal deception detection rather what we would do is look at purely linguistic studies of genres text types and grammatical choices and lexical choices that we make depending on the text type mm. so 
there's a lot of interesting work, and this is especially going back sort of to the to the 1980s. Um, and one linguist I feel I should mention is Douglas Biber, an American linguist who's done fantastic work in this area, looking at different genres, different text types, and working out how often different grammatical and lexical features typically occur in these text types. And what you what you find when you do that sort of analysis is that speech, let's take face-to-face -face conversation as an example, uh, because that often occurs in films, of course, is really radically different from many other genres, such as general fiction or such as academic prose. So face-to-face -face conversation, for example, uses personal pronouns like I and you more often, um, whereas in uh, general fiction, you will tend to find more personal pronouns such as he or, or she, because those genres have a more narrative function. Mm. Now, I sometimes do this as an exercise, actually, in my grammar class. I show the students a bit of, let's say, comedy, comedy which is meant to contain fairly naturalistic conversation and i get them to analyze that conversation in relation to and in terms of what we know about the grammar of conversation as opposed to the grammar of of other text types including more more prepared more carefully edited text types you do often find that what is meant to be naturalistic conversation actually isn't as naturalistic as perhaps it was it was meant to be it's, um, a, li it's a little little too literary or something right exactly yes so the word length might be a bit too long there might be too many full nouns and too few personal pronouns in it those sorts of things so there might be slightly too much repetition of words so by using that kind of knowledge this kind of analysis often can tell you whether or not speech really is natural or is kind of an imitation of naturalistic speech. Well, that's great for actors, but uh, perhaps more for, more for playwrights and uh, scriptwriters. Yes, yeah. yes. Yeah. Although yeah. I suppose... We're not testing the actor's ability to put one over on us so much as the playwright, yeah. perhaps. Yes, yes. But my sense is that if a playwright were to write truly naturalistic speech... It might sound a little bit, a boring. little bit pedestrian. Yes, a bit boring. Exactly, exactly. So uh, we don't want so, so, don't want to bore people, do we? No. No, exactly, exactly. But, but I think back to George Bernard Shaw's highly literary playwriting. Um, I mean, I'm sure that his plays has everyone's speaking great long monologues that mm. could, could come straight out of a novel, I suppose. So, Yes, but but yes. it's and it's a miracle that we accept it as uh, real people speaking. So, you, yes, we can, we, yes. can, we have many ways of putting one over on the public with with theatre and film. Yeah, I mean, of course, the transition from sort of written literature and stage plays to television has been a gradual one, and so you often see that sort of early works do sound more literary simply because the genre hadn't distanced itself very much yet from you know from writing. It's sort of a, a gradual development. And I mean, the fact that you pick Shaw rather than some 21st century playwright um, is, is a little, yeah, yeah exactly, is, is, is an illustration of that. Yeah. yeah. Well, Willem Holman, thank you so very much for uh, talking to me today. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you very much, Paul. I've really enjoyed it. And thanks to you for joining me, Paul Meyer, and my guest, Professor Willem Holman. To learn more about him, Please see the webpage on paulmeyer.com devoted to this podcast. And don't forget to follow Paul Meyer Dialect Services on Facebook and me on Twitter at Dialect Paul.
My guests next month are Jeremy Fisher and Gillian Kays, the wonderful singing coach team that you enjoyed here a couple of years ago. This time we're going to talk about pitch, as in high pitch and low pitch, and what meaning and values we attach to pitch. Also, what's the world record for range of pitch in the human voice? Next time on In a Manner of Speaking. Happy Holidays. <laughs>